Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. My name is Joe. If we haven't met, if we have met, you know it's Joe as well already. But I am here today to finish off our Jonah series. Exciting stuff. Hopefully you've been tracking along. You've been able to make it for a few, if not all of them. I've been loving just unpacking the book of Jonah. Other thing I love, I love movies. I love watching movies. I actually, once upon a time many years ago, I was a film student. I did have the government pay for my pleasure of watching movies as I got hex back then and just sat and watched movies every Wednesday morning and wrote assignments about them. But one of the things that I loved was, um, I don't know if you've come across the movies of a guy called M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, the Sixth Sense. Anyone ever seen The Sixth Sense? Sign, Lady in the Water, all those kind of movies. If you know those movies, you know that once you've seen them once, you've seen them. Once you've seen the end of the movie, the whole movie makes sense. I kind of feel like that this morning that sadly Pastor Ryan showed you the end of the movie on week one and so by week four it's really the spoilers have all happened. Jonah doesn't see dead people but you know the story. But what I feel like and what I hope today is that as we step into Jonah chapter four, you already knowing the end from the beginning, that God speaks to you in a different way. Like those movies. When you watch them the second time and the third time and the fourth time and as many times as you do, you start to pick up on things that you wouldn't have noticed the first time around. And I hope and my prayer for you this morning is that because you already know the end, God speaks to you something new and fresh this morning as you look at the end again. I'm excited for what he's going to do this morning. We've had four weeks. This is week four. First week, John was second week. Ryan was first week. He told us you can run, but you can't hide. Jonah's story starts with him running away, trying to run from God. Week two, you can get yourself into deep water and it doesn't matter how deep you sink, sometimes you need to hit rock bottom before you actually start to see what God's got for you. Last week, Pastor Robin showed us that our words have power, that what we speak out is actually really significant, but what's more powerful is when what we speak is a piece of God's heart, not just a piece of our mind. When we speak out the power of God's heart, it actually transforms lives. Because in all, what we're here to do is that as we love God, we're here to tell others, right? That's what it's all about. So today we're going to jump into chapter 4 and see that God is in fact the God of the nations. He always has been and he always will be. Let's pray as as we start this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you. That by your spirit, you made sure we had this book. We had this, this narrative of Jonah's life and his ministry and that you speak to us through it today. And we ask that you'd open us to it today. Your peace would descend upon, descend upon this room so that in the midst of your peace, we would be challenged to love you better, to love you more, and to love others because of it. Amen. I'm a local boy. I grew up in the western suburbs of Brisbane. Uh, I live in Belbarry. I grew up in Mogul. I went to Pullenvale State School. It was a great time. Uh, I remember right the way through school, it was a tiny school way back then in the, in the 
80s. It's a little school. By the time I got to grade seven, there was, uh, I think there was nine of us in my grade seven class. It's tiny, it was awesome. I remember growing up, lots of friends, I have really fond memories of birthday parties at Athel and Estelle Alcorn's place as like a six and seven year old. And there was this one particular kid in my class, Robbie. He's a good mate of mine. Lovely guy, just always fun, always smiling. We started primary school together as fresh-faced six-year-olds. We grew up together. By probably the middle to late stages of primary school, started to work out that he was a little bit different. He wasn't necessarily like the rest of us. He had some form of dwarfism. Uh, he wasn't growing the same. He didn't develop the same as us. But what I really distinctly remember is not thinking that that was actually anything bad. I don't remember thinking anything bad about that. We loved Robbie. Robbie was a great guy. He came to all my birthday parties. There was never a problem. He just was a little bit different, but that wasn't an issue. We never thought less of him, ever. We never picked on him. We never thought of him as different to us. We were all different in our own way. What was interesting was that all those years ago, familiarity didn't breed contempt. We didn't pick on him because I think because we already had a relationship that predated us understanding what different meant. Which got me thinking, what does that say about us today? When often difference means we start to attribute value or a lack of value to someone else. When we're different, maybe we've got different skin, different beliefs, a different gender, maybe we've got a different belief and background, maybe our culture's different. We seem to always notice differences, and I feel like our culture is spending a lot of time to try and smooth over the differences in the fear that that will cause brokenness and dysfunction, but it's true that sometimes and quite often the differences cause animosity. What does it say about us as human beings that because of our differences it changes the way we relate to each other? That our default seems to be that instead of celebrating the differences, we reject the differences. We fear difference. We judge. We get scared and so we hate. Anger overflows into rejection. We start being proud of how we're different and why they're wrong. But we love God, right? What are we telling others? As we get into the book of Jonah today, I want to kind of put Jonah back into a, a bit of a bigger context. I want to take what we know of him so far and place it back into the, to the, to the kind of the big narrative that God is trying to draw us into that he's, he's telling as we go through the whole of scripture. Because Jonah's just four little chapters tucked in behind the Psalms. It's easy to skip them and you find yourself suddenly down in Ezekiel and you didn't even see the minor prophets. But Jonah's there for a reason. But Jonah's powerful because it starts, the story in Jonah starts a lot earlier. As always, the story starts in the garden where humanity has perfect unity with each other and perfect intimacy with God. We, we have this beautiful start, but you know the story, we stuff it up. We decide that we can do God's job better than him and we can work out what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. And we take on what was always his responsibility. And the result is brokenness and sin and separation and curse. 
It'll be a short story if it stopped there, but we know that God's not satisfied with that, right? Genesis 3, it falls down, but just a few short pages later in my Bible and probably in yours, we hit Genesis 12, and God kicks into place this plan he's got for redemption to, to draw all humanity back into relationship with him. He doesn't want it to stay broken. And so Genesis 12, we pick up this, this story, this promise, this interaction, this relationship that God establishes with Abraham. Let's read it together. Genesis 12. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham And you've heard it before, we've talked about it a few times in this series, but the core of it is that God blesses Abraham and his family and his descendants and the nation that comes from him in order that the world will be blessed. He said, Abraham, I love you. If you love me, tell others. That's why he blessed Abraham. That's why he called him, so that the world would get to know what he's like. So let's jump back to Jonah now. If you've got your Bible, let's jump to Jonah chapter 4. It's an interesting point in the book of Jonah right now. Jonah's given his very short prophetic word to the people of Nineveh. Little to no help about what to do about it. But the people from the top to the bottom and left and to the right, they all repent. The whole city-state turns to this God because of Jonah's proclamation of doom. And how does Jonah react? Let's jump in. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was still in my own country That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Well, right here we see why Jonah ran away. When we meet Jonah in chapter 1, he just runs. He hears the word of the Lord and he goes the opposite direction. He runs away. Why? Because he knew. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. He knew no matter what happened and no matter what he said, God was good. God was loving. God would give his enemy the opportunity to repent and to turn. And he knew that God wanted to do that. And so he didn't want to go. Does that just ruin your picture of Jonah? (laughs) This guy's a jerk. It changes the whole story. Chapter chapter 1, as he's there, throw me over, it'll save your lives. What I hear is Jonah saying, throw me over. If I drown, I'm off the hook. I don't have to go if I'm dead. Here, try that one, God. I don't want to go. I'd rather die. And we get to chapter 4, and now that he's told them and they're repenting, he's like, I still want to die. I've had enough of this. Jonah is an interesting person. 
And it's an interesting dynamic to notice. I want you to catch it. Jonah doesn't doubt God. He's not ignorant of God's character. He barely even misrepresents him. He knows him intimately. But he does not connect to his heart. He knows his character and nature, but is not in a place of intimacy, so it's reflected in his own life. It's not like he thinks that he knows better than God. He simply knows that God is too good for his own personal preference. One commentator said, bad behavior should lead to a bad end. And Jonah takes it badly that it doesn't. Jonah's going, look at them. They're naughty. They're bad. They suck. Kill them. I knew you'd be nice. Oh. What becomes actually probably the most shocking and the most scandalous in this right now is that Jonah takes possibly one of the most precious revelations of the father and throws it back in his face as an accusation. Exodus chapter 34, it's this amazing point in Israel's history where they've come out of the wilderness, they've been given the law, this, this covenant agreement, this covenant invitation to be with God, and, and Moses is leading them, and, and God says, now I'm going to send an angel in front of you, and they're going to go get the place ready for you, you just go after them, and Moses is like, no, 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 I'm not going unless your presence comes with me, not interested. And God says, that's okay, I'll come with you. And Moses says, show me your glory. So God obliges. He hides him in a cleft in a rock on a mountain and passes all of his glory before him. And the revelation that comes out of that, Moses says, Oh, the Lord, the Lord, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, he will forgive the iniquities of those who turn back to him and those who don't. He will judge and pour judgment upon them. This is the revelation of God, the goodness of God that came out of a, a, the actual interaction of his manifest presence. And Jonah turns it back as an accusation to him. Jonah's playing with fire. Jonah's not impressed. Jonah knows the truth, but he's relationally disconnected from why the truth is powerful. God is the God of the nations and wants the nations to know, but Jonah didn't love the nations. Jonah didn't actually love God the way that God loved him. So what was he telling others? It's actually, this, is, this is a huge deal, what, what Jonah's doing now. Israel, the covenant community, would have, would have, would have seen this book and th- this text, and like Jonah in the midst of it, he is confronted with God's grace and mercy and God's kindness towards the, the, the just horrendous people of Nineveh and the Assyrians and his kindness towards the sailors we know. And, and Jonah is just entirely scandalized by this. This is not okay. This is outrageous. But for those reading the book, knowing how the story progresses, you'd be scandalized by Jonah's response to God. Don't you know? Don't you know what's going on? You've got to remember that when we find the text of the book of Jonah, it's a long time after the events. 
We assume that Israel had the book sometime probably before the captivity to Babylon in in the the 500s BC, but all that we have of the Old Testament has been kind of squeezed through this little period of time where the, the faithful ones were taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And they collated the scriptures and they organized them and they put them all together. And so those people who have forsaken God, who have been judged and taken into captivity, who are in the process of experiencing the covenant promises that God outlined in Deuteronomy, said, I'll bless you if you follow me, but if you reject me, then there's going to be a period of discipline and judgment so that you'll come back to my heart. They're experiencing the fullness of that. And so Jonah is being read and they're like, Jonah, that's the problem. That's why we're here. People like you didn't tell us that God loved the nations. We abused our land and we abused the poor and we abused the marginalized and we rejected our role as God's image bearers to the world. Those who desperately need to know that God is good, we decided we keep it for ourselves. Jonah is put exactly where it is as a cautionary tale to the readers. It's a mirror. And it's a caution. And the caution is this. Is your heart soft to the things of God's heart? And the mirror is this. What do you think about what your role is in this covenant between God and humanity? What do you think you're supposed to be doing in the midst of this? as those who are experiencing captivity and pain and judgment, but knew that God was going to be faithful, Jonah pulls people into the reality of, I need to sort out what's going on. It's not pulling any punches. It it speaks right to the heart of the Israelites' condition before the exile, why they ended up there, about those who are in exile and those following, will they be faithful to pick up the mantle that Abraham had been given? And it's a challenge to the community of faith who continue in the tradition of the Abrahamic covenant, which is you and me. What is our role in this covenant? In case you haven't picked it up yet, we get another little sweep of the story. It doesn't end in verse 4 with a question. Jonah doesn't answer God's question. Do you do well to be angry? Are you justified in being angry about me forgiving them? There's a deafening silence, I think, between verse 4 and 5. I suppose Jonah probably feels a little bit like Job when he gets questioned at the end of his book. But the text of Jonah chapter 4 continues. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city of Nineveh and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. (laughs) So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
Jonah replies, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, the Lord, not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? We get another question. It ends with a question. It's confronting. It's weird, right? If you remember Jonah growing up uh, as a kid's story in church, it probably finished around the end of chapter 3 because the weird stuff with the plant and the worms were way too hard to work out. It's VeggieTales, Jonah is much easier to stomach because Jonah's not a, as big a jerk in that, right? We don't hear this last bit where Jonah's having a hissy fit and sucking his thumb and being toddler tantrum Jonah. But it's an interesting challenge. And I think it's important that we keep chapter four in because otherwise it's a good story for our kids. It's a giant fish. Kids love it. Chapter four, this is a challenge to you because what is in your heart? It's a challenge. We see this familiar phrase that comes up time and again in Jonah. God appointed. God appointed a fish. Potentially appointed the storm, but it doesn't use the same word. He appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed a wind. Jonah's been trying to make a point up until now. God, I knew you'd be nice. That's why. That's why. I knew you'd be good. God's like, okay, you're done because I'm going to make my point now. It's a nice plant, isn't it? This is how it goes. This is what's going on behind the scenes. Jonah drops his bomb, walks out of the city, throws together some kind of shade, sits down. It's hot. It's real hot. It's like good morning Vietnam hot. This is too much. God in his kindness gives him a plant, a supernatural plant overnight, boom, up it comes. Oh, this is all good. Now I can sit back with Nineveh filling my horizon, waiting to see hopefully they won't turn and I can watch them burn. I know it's not going to work that way, but I hopefully. I'm hanging out hope that they won't get it right. I didn't even tell them how to repent. It's nice and cool in the shade here though. I wake up the next morning, it's gone. God, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Why would you take away the plant that I didn't work for, that I didn't plant, that I didn't cultivate? How dare you take away my plant? And you thought it was hot before. It's real hot after this. God sends a wind. Jonah cries out, let me die. God asks again, do you think that the way you're reacting to the circumstances that you're in is right? Are you justified in being angry about the plant? The picture I have is Jonah sitting there sucking his thumb, having his hissy fit, and God's just poking him. You're going to talk to me. I'm going to get a response from you. I know it's in your heart, but I want you to say it out loud so I can hold the mirror up and you can hear it for yourself. 
Are you justified in your anger? Yeah, I am. Heck yeah. It's hard. It's miserable. And those people suck. Let's deal with this already. Come on. God's like, got you. There it is. What's on the inside is coming out, and now we can talk about it, Jonah. You care about a plant that you didn't do anything for. You're upset about stuff that you didn't put in any effort in. You're upset about stuff being taken away from you that you never fought for, that you never cultivated. You're upset because opportunity has been taken away from you, but don't you realize that I provided it for you to begin with? Are you forgetting the fact that I sorted this all out for you? And if you, Jonah, care about something that you didn't work for, how do you think I, God, feel about the people I created? How do you think I feel about the people who are so lost right now in darkness they don't know their left hand from their right? And surely if the people don't even count, there is a a nation's worth of livestock in there that will destroy people's lives. Do you not care about anything, Jonah? How hard is your heart? I asked you to love me. So you tell them what I'm like. What are you doing, Jonah? Everyone was supposed to know what God was like because of his covenant people, and Jonah was one of them. And he wasn't doing a great job. Right from the start, right back, he commissioned humanity to to bring flourishing to the earth. He commissioned Abraham to bless the nations. He sent Abraham as a missional lover of God to raise up a missional people who would speak out the truth of God. Yet somehow in the process of being blessed, they focused inwards and they said, instead of what is an invitation to you now, it's going to be restricted to us and now it's going to be exclusive to us. What was your offer is now what excludes you and you're out. You lose because we win. Don't you know it's been hard for us as a nation? Don't you know that we are picked on by everyone? We're going to keep this blessing to ourselves because what if it runs out? Totally missing. God wanted Israel to be assigned to the nations. But by the time of the exile, I think there's a lot of people who thought and acted like Jonah. Jonah was just lacking enough tact to say it out loud. God prompted me with this as I was reading through this passage this week. I've been a Christian for, I was probably about nine and 14. I made a, I think I made a really clear decision that this is actually what I wanted to do. And about 19, I thought, yeah, I'm actually going to get real serious about this. I'm going to not just say God is is my Lord, but I'm going to start to throw my life and my energy into the things of the kingdom. And so I've read my Bible a lot. I've read it cover to cover. I don't know how many times I love the Bible. I, I live in it. And when I read the Bible, I often put myself in the place of Israel. I'm one of God's chosen people. I know God, he loves me, and I love him. I I put myself in the place of Israel except for when they stuff up and do dumb stuff. And I go, I'm not Israelite, I got Jesus, it's all good. But God just kind of stopped me this week. This idea just just bubbled up into my head. I thought, actually, we aren't the Israelites in this story. 
At least we didn't start as the Israelites in this story. We didn't start as Jonah or Abraham or any of those people. We aren't the ones that God called out of her and said, you'll be my chosen family and you'll bless the world. We weren't those people. We were Nineveh, you and me. We were Nineveh. We were lost in darkness. We had no corner on the truth. We didn't know what we were doing right or wrong. We had no revelation of God. We didn't get born into a revelation of God. We were lost in darkness. That's the nature of who we were without Jesus. We were Nineveh. We had not seen what God was like. We didn't know it was going to end badly for us. Maybe today, maybe in eternity. We had no idea. And the Jonas and the Abrahams and the Moseses were sent to us. We're only here because of God's grace. We are the beneficiaries of Exodus 34. When God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, that the nations would be blessed through you. He saw Australia. He saw pagan and lost Gentiles. He said, I need someone to know me so that that nation will know me. We are the Ninevites. We're the sailors. We're the lost ones who have a revelation of God. And it causes something to well up in us. And as I was praying about this, the Lord just reminded me of, of the story in Luke chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, turn there. But it's this scene where Jesus has been ministering and teaching and he's with Pharisees having dinner. Just him with some Pharisees. Simon, we think, is his name. And Jesus is, is reclining at the table as they did in those days. And this woman comes in, this woman of the city, a prostitute comes in with an expensive jar, an alabaster jar of oil. And she breaks it and pours it over his feet. And she's weeping because she's encountered the love of God. And she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. And it's this awkwardly intimate and beautiful scene that the Pharisee is not impressed by. And he's like, don't you know what she's like? You're supposed to be a prophet. You should know what she does. How dare you let someone so disgustingly dirty and sinful touch you, let alone in my house? And Jesus says this. Actually, in verse 40, I'll start a verse earlier. Luke 7, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. Maybe in a moment he regrets saying, tell me. Jesus says this in, in Luke 7, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love the moneylender more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Then turning to the woman... He said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, Simon, gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little... Loves little. God is the God of the nations. God made a promise to Abraham so that the nations would be blessed. We are the beneficiaries of that promise. 
We were lost in darkness. We had nothing, no one, and God stepped in. Scandalously stepped into our lives. He forgave us of all of our brokenness and our pride, our sin. He broke the curse over our lives. He forgave us much. We are like Nineveh. But as I sat at my desk in this beautiful church where I've been on staff for 12 years in a community of faith that I've been part of for 40-something years, after knowing Jesus for 30-something years, I thought, oh, I think I've forgotten what I've been forgiven of. I think I've forgotten what Jesus did in my life some days. Some days I forget how much I've been forgiven of. Some days I forget how much I still need to be forgiven. Sometimes I forget that I've been loved much and I feel like I've only been loved a little and so I have very little give away. And so instead of realizing that I'm Nineveh who's been set free from judgment and death, I feel like I'm Jonah and I'm like, God, thanks. Don't be too nice to them, though. My question as you walk through this day and this life, as we are called to be his people, a light to the nations, because he's a God of the nations, do we remember how much we've been forgiven? Do we remember how much God has set us free? Are we embarrassed by the tears and the anointing, by the overtly intimate display of affection to God, do we go, well, that's a bit much because we've forgotten just what we've been set free from? Are we like Nineveh? I don't care the cost. I don't care what it looks like. Everyone put on your sackcloth and ashes and lie down before the Lord because I think that maybe he might want to save us. And our love and our life and our mission and our light shines because we decided We've been forgiven a lot because he stepped into our life. My question today, have you been forgiven much or we have been forgiven little? Jonah ends with a question and I want to end with that question. Have you been forgiven much or have you been forgiven little? Do you love God? Would you stand to your feet? As we move into a time of worship and response, I want you to think on that question. I want you to let God take you back to that time where you were set free. Maybe you haven't yet been set free and you need to know what that love feels like. I don't know where you're at today. But the question is, have you been forgiven much? Would you love me much? Because when you love me much, everyone will know that you love me. You'll tell others. I believe God wants to take us back before, before we got jaded, before we got lost, before we started to define others by what they didn't do. That we'd be like those little six-year-olds who didn't notice that that kid had developmental issues and just loved him. My mate Robbie. Because the reality is that's us. 
We weren't right. We weren't developing the way we should, but God stepped in and loved us unconditionally and didn't see a problem, but saw someone worth it. Has he forgiven you much? I want to pray for you today that God's love will be shed abroad in your heart, it says in scriptures. What that means is that you have a radical encounter with his love today. Because one day you did. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, one day you were radically encountered by his love. And I want to take you back to that spot so that you don't ever forget what you've been forgiven of. That you'll know that you've been loved much. And so you can love others much. So if you know Jesus today, I would love you to posture yourself in some way that reflects the fact that you need to acknowledge that God loves you. That you were unlovable and he stepped into your life and loved you. Maybe that's your hands in front of you. Maybe that's your head bowed. Maybe, maybe you need to kneel. Maybe you need to get out of your seat and come down the front. I don't know, but would you just posture yourself into a, a place that God might just touch you afresh with his love today? Would you close your eyes? God, as, just, as, your, as your children here today, God, with a question ringing in our ears, have we been forgiven much? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you take us to that moment where we first encountered the scandalous love of God? Would you remind us? I thank you, Jesus, that in you, you redeem our imagination and our memory and you restore it to a place that allows us to remember what it is you've done in our lives. Would you take us to that moment where we encountered you for that first time? Would you remind us of what we've been set free from? God, would you come and would you start to stir up in our hearts, in our minds, the memory of freedom and love. Maybe it was a week ago, maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was 40 years ago, but would you let the Lord take you back to that moment and start to speak his words of love over you? You matter to me. You matter to me. I saw you when you were lost and you mattered to me and I chose you. I called you out. You were lost in the darkness. You were Nineveh and I said, you're going to be mine. Come to me. And as he stirs that up in your heart, God, I ask right now that you just pour your love out in this place. Lord, you'd pour it out like a, like a, like a torrential rain in this place. Holy Spirit, that you come and you just baptize us afresh in your love. Like we saw those beautiful children this morning entering the waters of baptism. Lord, would you let your love come baptize us afresh this morning? Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.